So I apologize for the technical difficulties. If you're new here, thank you for joining us. Uh, we hope that your experience with us is going to be something that glorifies God. That's, that's really our goal here, is to exalt the name of Jesus. We are a text-driven people, so we focus um, everything that we do in, on, and around the text of Scripture. It's our greatest authority. And currently, we've been in a series in 1 Peter. So if you've ever read the letter of, the letter of 1 Peter, then you're going to be familiar and able to just jump in today. We work verse by verse through the letter because nobody opens up a letter that they get from their family member and throws the front page off and just skips to the back and says, I'll read this one paragraph here and maybe later I'll get to the rest of the letter. Nobody does that. <laughs> so when we started our study, we read the letter in its entirety, then we listened to the letter in its entirety. And we've been moving our way through the letter verse by verse and we'll continue to do so until it ends. This is an encyclical letter. Peter writes to multiple churches in the provinces of Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Laodicea. And he's writing to multiple churches, multiple church sites, different home churches that are experiencing local persecution. They're being persecuted by their peers. They're being ostracized in their local communities. And Peter is writing this letter to encourage them, to fuel the fire, to be courageous for the sake of Jesus and for the name of Jesus. And we know that they were successful in the midst of all that they experienced. Why? Because you and I are standing here today and we are the byproduct of that faithfulness. So if this letter in its context was successful in a catalyst for energy and endurance for the church, then it's going to function the same way today for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Alright, so I'm not going to recap everything that we've covered. We're just going to dive right in this morning. Today's uh, passage in 1 Peter is a fun one. It's an exciting one and it's a strange one for sure. It comes to us from 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verse 18 through 22 today. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're reading 18 through 22. We're going to read from the ESV. Let's get the text up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, let us know and we'll give you one to take home totally free. Peter begins in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Amen is right. This is the Gospel right here. And we love the Gospel. But before we just dive in head first, first things first today. For those of us who may be new to the faith, maybe new to the text of Scripture, for those of us who haven't spent our time in God's Word, we need to know that this passage in 1 Peter is one of, if not the most, debated passages in the whole of the New Testament. I want us to listen to the words of Martin Luther, who wrote, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what the Apostle Peter means. Now close your eyes and think with me. We're talking about Martin Luther. <laughs> One of the great forerunners of the Reformation who had the courage and the strength to take his 95 theses and hammer it to the door of the Roman Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We're talking about the same Martin Luther who was put on trial as a heretic for standing on the Scriptures alone. And when he was at the Diet of Worms on trial before those who were judging him, he dogmatically responded to their questions, Here I stand, I can do no other. And this is what he says about 1 Peter. <laughs> he says, I do not know for certain 
just what the Apostle Peter means. Fast forward 500 years plus later, modern commentators like Edward Swillen, he notes that there are few passages in the New Testament which have exercised commentators more or given rise to a greater variety of interpretation than this passage right here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18-22. through 22. And it gets strange beginning in verse 19. Therefore, church, any attempt to interpret this passage, any attempt to exegete this passage, should be viewed as a lesson in humility. If Martin Luther can admit that he doesn't know for certain what Peter means, then we ought to be able to make that same assertion. We have to be willing to address these hard realities. If you've been raised in the church that the text of Scripture is simple and that we have the answer for everything, I'm sorry. (laughs) Because that's not how it goes. Translation requires interpretation. And everybody approaches the text and brings their own lens to it. Which is why reader response is dangerous. We need to have our worldview informed by what the author meant. By what the audience understood. Not by what we think it means. Trust me. Smarter people, both men and women, have wrestled their way through this portion of the text. That's why I will always encourage you to question and challenge everything that I preach from on this stage and behind this pulpit. That's my encouragement to you. In fact, you should challenge and question everything that not only comes from behind this pulpit, but any pulpit. Be a Berean, like Art said last week. Don't just settle, well, that's the, that's the Apostle Paul, that's Pastor so-and-so, they must know what they're talking about. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not the example in Acts chapter 17. Go back to the Scriptures for yourself. Ultimately, here's what it comes down to. We need to know what we believe. That's a fact. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. We need to be able to look to the Scriptures... And be able to identify the evidence for what it is and why we believe it before going to external sources. We need to exercise humility when arguing for our interpretation and our application of the text. Amen? Saints, when we come to the text and we make an informed decision only to change our minds at a later date after further study, we need to know that's acceptable. You can do that. It's part of growth and sanctification. When we get saved, we don't come to the text and know everything. We think things about the text only to be reformed and transformed by the work of who? The Spirit of God. And it happens most often in the fellowship of the saints. We need to know that holding a minority position is acceptable. We need to know that adhering to a position which acknowledges the validity of multiple interpretations is acceptable. Let me tell you what I thought. I came to this portion of the text and I thought, here we go. I actually enjoy this portion of the text. I can't wait to preach this portion of the text. I think I have a well-informed view in light of this portion of the text, only to, through my study and preparation, be confronted with the reality that Matt has not asked all of the right questions. Which means Matt might want to pump the brakes on planting a flag and going, this is where I stand. We need to know this too. This one's important. It's acceptable to say, I don't know when we don't have an answer. It's okay to not have the answer to everything. To look at somebody and with honesty and transparency and humility say, I just don't know. (laughs) But I can find the answer and I'll get back to you or I know someone who might know the answer and help me get back to you. That's acceptable. Here's another important thing. 
unnecessary dogmatism is unacceptable when we, the church, approach passages such as this. Unity, we say it all the time, unity does not require uniformity. Last week when Art preached, it was a beautiful example of how unity in the body of Christ does not require uniformity. Art preached pre-tribulation rapture theology from a premillennial dispensational perspective. I'm an amillennialist who embraces partial preterism. We have differences in how we view the end of days. But I honor you, Art. I respect you as my brother in the Lord because you have put in the work to know what you believe, why you believe it, and to show me and the rest of the body where they can stand confident on the text of Scripture. And that's a blessing in my life to be challenged. To be told, hey, consider this, Matt. Rethink this, Matt. Again, uniformity is not the goal. Unity in the Spirit is the goal, Paul says in Ephesians, I believe. And we have not attained the unity of the Spirit. If you disbelieve me, just take a look at the church universal and ask yourself how we're doing. we got a long way to go. We need Him to return to attain that type of unity. So unnecessary dogmatism is unacceptable in the light of passages such as this. Now as we prepare to navigate the text for today, let's keep in mind that God opposes the proud according to Peter, and yet He gives grace to the humble. And we at AC Squared, we want to exercise humility when we come to the text. God forbid that we ever approach the text of Scripture and say, the Spirit has nothing left to show me because I have plumbed it to its depths. God forbid that that ever be our attitude. Having expressed my thoughts on all of that, are we ready to dig in this morning? Are we ready to study the Bible together? All right, good. I need you guys to read this out loud for me, please. I love this verse. You, you and I could live in this verse and passages like it. It is so theologically rip, uh, rich. It is so deep. When we take a, a step back and we look at this verse, we immediately identify that we could discuss atonement theory. That could be the focus of today's Sermon, atonement theory. The simple statement, the righteous for the unrighteous, opens the door to discuss the atonement. We could talk apologetics if we wanted to. Peter tells us that Christ was put to death in the flesh. It's here that we find early eyewitness testimony that the human body of the historical Jesus, the man from Nazareth, that he actually experienced physical death. Therefore, the swoon theory and theories like it fail. We could debate philosophy. So the swoon theory would be that Jesus was replaced on the cross in the time that He was carrying it from where He was scourged to where He was hung. Not only was He replaced, but that the body that was hung, if it was His, they go a step further, if it wasn't replaced, if it was His, it was actually recuperated in the coolness of the tomb only to come out alive three days later and that He never actually died. This is very, very strong in Muslim theology and apologetics. Now we could debate philosophy. We could look at this passage and we could debate philosophy. Is there life after death? How many answers? How many different perspectives on that question alone exist today? Is there life after death? But when we look to what Peter says, he says that following his death, Christ was made alive in the Spirit. So just by taking a 10,000 foot view of this verse, we've identified that we could discuss atonement, apologetics, or philosophy. Which means there are many ways to approach this one verse. However, for this morning's study, I'd ask that we'd focus our attention on the reality that Christ suffered. Christ suffered. 
And the purpose and the function of His suffering was to reconcile us. He did it for what reason and for what purpose? He did it so that He might bring us to God. Amen? Amen. He bridged the gap that existed. Saints, the author's number one priority in regard to chapter 3, verse 18 through 22, is the gospel. Straightforward, it's the gospel. I want us to look at the way Peter bookends this section of the letter. To bookend something means we look at the beginning and we look at the end. Check it out. Verse 18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Speaking of Jesus in verse 22, it is He who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. This is the Gospel in a nutshell. We need to know this. We need to understand this. For Christ, in His life and in His ministry, He suffered. But He suffered once ultimately. Where? At Calvary. When He suffered and died at Calvary, it was for the sins of the unrighteous. Jesus Christ the righteous, our advocate, John would say, suffered for us the the propitiation of our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That He might bring us to God. That He might reconcile us in our broken relationship. Being put to death in the body, but made alive by the power of the Spirit. Why should we understand this to be made alive by the power of the Spirit? Because Jesus Christ was raised in a physical body. And that physical body that He was raised in bore the marks of the body that He had in His life and in His ministry and in the death that He faced on the cross. Amen? So He was raised by the power of the Spirit. And it is Jesus who is gone. So we have death, resurrection. We have ascension. He's gone into heaven. And He's been exalted because He's been seated at the right hand of God. And all angels, all authorities, all powers, both seen and unseen, have been subjected to Him. That's the Gospel! We could pack it up and go home right now. Because that's all you need to know. Put your faith in the finished work of Jesus. Or don't! It's not my call. Your salvation is not my call. You don't want God? Guess what? At the end, when He judges you, He'll give you exactly what you want. Either Him or not Him. Those are your options. Do all roads lead to God? Yeah, and there's a split when He brings judgment. The sheep on the right and the goats on the left. We're not playing here. We're not playing. This is the Gospel. And we don't budge on these things. These are non-negotiables right here. If there's anything that can be known about this passage, it's what we're talking about right now. Dennis Edwards notes that ultimately Christ is the focus. Christ is the hero. Christ secured our salvation. And Christ alone brings us to God. If there's anything worth remembering from this morning's study, it's that. If you can't hold on to anything else we cover in the next hour, I pray that you hold on to that and to that alone. That's it. That's my prayer. As Christians, saints, as Christians, we are to identify with the heroic and victorious Jesus. It is He who exemplified that death does not have the final word. Thomas Schreiner writes that suffering is the pathway to glory. He says, if you doubt me, study the life of Christ. Suffering is the pathway to glory. He says, those of us who choose to suffer for the sake of Christ will share in the same destiny. We will be glorified as He was glorified. We will be exalted as He was exalted. As the Father exalted the Son, so the Son will exalt the sheep of His pasture. You want a crown for all that you've done? You're going to get it. And then you're going to humbly lay it right back down at His feet. God will honor you. We should take that very seriously. New Testament scholar Karen Jobes reminds us that Christ's death opened the way so that we might follow Him through death into the presence of the Father. One New Testament author says, to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Who said that? Paul did. Another New Testament author says it this way. 
We shall be made like Him when we see Him because we will see Him as He is. Who said that? John in 1 John. It's my bad paraphrase. That's why you guys probably didn't know it. Three different authors, Peter, Paul, and John, all affirming the same truth but communicating it differently. Do we pick up on these things? When Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly, He meant it. Amen? Amen. So the Gospel is the thrust of what Peter's after in this portion. Don't lose sight of that. And having identified the main theme of the passage, I think we're ready to move forward. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? This is where it gets dicey, everybody. <laughs> this is where uncertainty becomes a reality. And we have to acknowledge this because historically speaking, there are a few passages in the New Testament which have given rise to a greater variety of interpretation. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of the different interpretations which exist. We just don't. We can't get into all of the details, but for the sake of time, we're going to look at three different views, and I'm going to do my best to present a summary of each interpretation. Now, here's the deal. It's my opinion that under these three views, all the other views fall. So if there's three umbrellas, any view that exists is going to exist under one of these umbrellas. That's my opinion. One scholar notes that the debate over these verses includes three questions, so let's put them up on the board. If you're a note taker, write these questions down. Next slide. Oh, wait. There's a slide. Yeah, this one. Okay. When, these are the three questions when we approach this text and how we should interpret it. When did Christ make his proclamation? Question number one. Question number two To whom did Christ make his proclamation? And question number three What did Christ proclaim? Those are the three questions that we should ask when we come to this portion of the text. Whatever view you hold, you have to ask and answer these. You just have to. Or else someone like me is going to press you when we find ourselves in conversation. Why? Because we're told previous to be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within. And we can't do that if we're not prepared, if we're not ready. And what better way to train than with someone who actually loves you and believes the same thing as you, but is going to press you on it before you get out there and you meet someone who hates you and is pressing you on it. So whatever view you hold of the three that we go through, hold it with some integrity. Another thing worth considering is the ancient's view of cosmology versus our view of cosmology. Okay? Some of us have still hold to this view. I think there's a lot of evidence lacking for that, but hey, welcome to the Thunderdome where we dialogue. Okay, our view of cosmology versus their view of cosmology. What they believed based on human observation versus what we now know thanks to our technological advances. Now, John Walton writes this, Language assumes a culture. Language operates in a culture. Language serves a culture. And language is designed to communicate into the framework of a culture. So when we read a text written in another language and authored at another time, we must translate the culture as well as the language if we hope to understand it fully. This is what they believed the cosmological makeup was. And this is going to inform directional language in the text. It's, there's no way around it. 
When we start talking about places that don't exist in our natural universe, but we know exist in the unseen realm, how do we know if they're down or up or right or left? We don't know that. <laughs> because they're not a part of our universe. However, their cosmology informed how they thought directionally. Which is why we need to be familiar with what they thought versus what we know. Or what some of us don't agree with what we know. So, let's look at interpretation number one. This is titled, Christ's Proclamation to the Human Souls Between His Death and His Resurrection. Christ's Proclamation to Human Souls Between His Death and Resurrection. Now, according to Dr. Craig Keener, most early church fathers, to include most Alexandrians such as Athanasius, have we heard that name before, Athanasius? Well, he believed, like most other church fathers, that between Christ's death and resurrection, Jesus preached salvation to the dead in Hades. This view is sometimes referred to as the descensus ad infernos. That's a Latin term. We would just call it the heralding of, he of, of hell. Where Christ goes in and He brings out. A flavor of this theological uh, position appears in the Apostles' Creed. So any of us have been in the church long enough or have looked at the creeds or read the creeds are immediately going to identify this language. However, we should note that the phrase He descended into hell or He descended into Hades was not a part of the earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed. It is in fact a late addition. So that line is late to the game. Historically speaking. So let's talk about the strengths of this view. A, it's one of the earliest theological interpretations which dates back to Clement of Alexandria. Sometime around 200 CE or 200 AD, however you frame your time. B, it holds the majority support of the church fathers. So those are the strengths of this position. Let's talk about the weaknesses in this view. Peter never speaks of a descent in which he went. Peter doesn't speak about which direction Jesus traveled. So when we're looking at the text in its immediate context, we can actually say, Peter doesn't talk about descent. Now some might go, well, Paul does in Ephesians. <laughs> okay, pause. Are we studying Ephesians? Do we know if these five Roman churches had access to the letter of Ephesus? Because Ephesus is not mentioned in the five Roman provinces. How long did it take for the letter to get there? And if it took the letter getting there for them to actually understand what Peter was saying, that means that the Spirit of God inspired Peter to leave people in a place where they didn't have all the information they needed to know and understand what it was that he was communicating. And I think that's ludicrous. B, Peter never mentions hell, Hades, Tartarus, or Sheol, or Gehenna. C, the abode of the dead is not called prison in the New Testament. It's just not. D, Christ proclaims. Which in the Greek language can simply mean to make a pronouncement. It doesn't say Christ evangelizes. E, the language of spirits in the Greek language refers much more plausibly with reference to divine beings, most commonly referred to as angels in the English language, as opposed to human spirits. So now we've surveyed interpretation number one. We've looked at the view. We've discussed some of its strengths and weaknesses. Let's see if we can answer our questions. When did Christ make His proclamation? Well, according to this theological position, Christ made His proclamation sometime between His death and His resurrection. To whom did He make His proclamation? To the spirits of human deceased. And where were they? Well, spatially, they must be located in either paradise or in torment awaiting the new Jerusalem or hell because nobody's in heaven and nobody's in hell right now. What did Christ proclaim? According to this view, theologians would argue that he proclaimed a message of salvation to those who were already deceased. We're going to talk in a little while about why that might be problematic. Let's move on. Interpretation number two. Let's put the text back up so everybody can see. Interpretation number two is titled, The Proclamation of the Preexisting Christ Through the Person of Noah. 
This view was advanced by Augustine. Everybody heard the name Augustine? Okay. He argued that the pre-existing Christ working through the Spirit preached through Noah to Noah's generation. Just to be clear, according to the view, Christ was not personally present. He wasn't born of the Virgin Mary for a long time following the life of Noah. So Christ wasn't personally present. However, He did speak by means of the Holy Spirit through Noah. If this view is correct, any notion of Christ descending into the realm of the dead is off the table. It's got to be done away with, which means you do not affirm the creed if you embrace this view. Some scholars argue, and they, they argue very well, that Augustine offered this interpretation in response to the Decentus ad Infernos view, noting that Augustine recognized the potential theological problem of possible post-mortem evangelism and conversion. And that is a problem, everybody, because Hebrew says that it is appointed unto men once to die and then be judged. So Augustine picked up on the theological issues that existed within the interpretation of interpretation number one, and he came up with this view. (laughs) Apparently, it was his rejection of this idea that motivated his research for an alternative understanding rather than a desire to exegete the text in its context. Boom, red flag for me. You better exegete the text in its context. You better not be fighting some theological battle. This is why the reformers have to be understood through the lens that they were fighting the Roman Catholic Church and not early Judaism. Oh, Matt's a new perspective on Paul guy. No, but both camps have very good things in them and both camps have nasty stuff that we have to deal with. (laughs) Rejection of a theological concept is what drove that interpretation. So let's address the strengths of this view. A, it suggests that Christ is at work in His divine nature through the prophets of the Old Testament, a view which seems to accord with the concept laid out in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. So contextually within the letter, this can be defended apparently. So let's talk about the weaknesses of this view. Well, A, verse 19 seems to speak of a going which he went, seems to speak of a going. It says, in which he went. (laughs) Which is largely problematic for two reasons. Christ doesn't truly go anywhere if he preaches through the person of Noah. And second, how is Christ required to go anywhere if he speaks only through the Holy Spirit? Because they're different. We're not modalists around here. We're Trinitarian. B, this view fails to do justice to the contextual link which extends all the way through verse 22 where we see that Christ is said to rule over angels, authorities, and powers. This is an event which we know followed both the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It took place in His exaltation. So having surveyed this view and discussed some of its strengths and weaknesses, let's see if we've answered our questions. Back to the drawing board. When did Christ make His proclamation? Well, according to this view, Christ, through the Holy Spirit, made His proclamation during the life of Noah. Well, if He made it during the life of Noah, to whom did He make His proclamation to? Noah's contemporaries, Noah's peers, those who were alive pre-flood event. What did Christ, through the Holy Spirit, proclaim according to this view via the mouth of Noah. Well, it would be a message of salvation, absolutely. But it wouldn't be eschatological salvation. It would be, yo, get on the ark with me because the rain's coming and the floods are about to go up. (laughs) So it would have been temporal salvation, but salvation nonetheless, because all of them, all eight, ultimately experienced death. Now, before we move on, I want everyone to understand that this view is currently in the scholarly world considered the minority view. However, credible scholars hold it. And they defend it well. So it's still a viable option for you if you go and you study and you're like, this is where I land. It brings us to our final survey, interpretation number three. This interpretation is titled, Christ's Proclamation to the Fallen Angels or Giants. In this view, we see Christ's proclamation as a message given not to living or deceased human spirits, 
but to the fallen angels who first appeared on the scene in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. The Nephilim. According to this view, the spirits in prison are regarded as the rebellious sons of God who came to earth and whose sin instigated the increase of evil to such a degree that it resulted in the great flood. The content of Christ's message has nothing to do with repentance or salvation. Ultimately, it functions as a final proclamation, either in word or deed, communicating the absolute defeat and subjugation of the spirits who willfully rebelled against God. Hebrews says that he put all things, all things under his feet, and that we long for the day when we will experience the reality that death is no longer present. So let's talk about some of the strength factors in connection to this view. A, as previously mentioned in the text of Scripture, in the Greek language, the language of spirits fits much more plausibly with reference to divine beings as opposed to the spirits of the living or deceased humans. B, the use of the term went in verse 19, as well as has gone, and we're not going to see has gone, but this word went and has gone, it's the same word in the Greek, it's just translated differently in the English. So these two times that this term is used most naturally refers to Jesus' exaltation if we read the text in context. Around here we would say context determines meaning. In verse 19, Christ proclaims His victory over the spirits as the crucified and risen Lord. In verse 22, He subjects the spirits, i.e. angels, powers, and authorities to Himself as God's vice regent. We would call this the final event in this context something that can be described only in light of his exaltation. He was seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, and Paul says he was what? Given a name. And that name is what? Above all other names. And that at the spoken word of that name, every what? Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth, cosmology, and under the earth, ha-ha, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So, Christ proclaims his victory over the spirits as the crucified risen Lord. C, all of this seems to fit nicely within the framework of Enoch's role in 1 Enoch, if you read chapters 12 or 16. I would argue that this leaves us a beautiful example of biblical type and anti-type applications. And we talked about types and antitypes in my last sermon in Peter and how they function. The type is what prefigures the greater and ultimate fulfilling, and the antitype is the greater ultimate fulfilling of the original type in the Old Testament, unfolded or revealed in the New Testament. Weaknesses within this view, let's talk about them. If there's any, it's the fact that modern-day evangelicals seem to take issue with the idea that the Apostle Peter may be sourcing Second Temple literature to frame some of what's been written within the inspired canon. Christians, Protestants, we shriek back. Ah, how could he use extra-biblical literature to frame his, what he's writing? Well, if you have a problem with that, you're going to have a huge problem with Second Peter and Jude. So having surveyed this view and discussed some of its strengths and weaknesses for the last time, let's see if we've answered some of our questions. We go back to the drawing board. We bring the questions up here. When did Christ make his proclamation? Well, according to this view, we would say after his resurrection and sometime between his ascension and exaltation. Think about the bookends. To whom did he make his proclamation? To the spirits, the rebellious Elohim, the B'nai Elohim those sons of God who fell from their dwelling place of glory, as Jude would say. What did Christ proclaim? Well, he proclaimed both his victory and the condemnation of all enemies, both seen and unseen. And we don't know if he did it verbally or if it was simply the act that he ascended through the heavens and was seated at the right hand. Peter doesn't tell us what exactly was proclaimed. Was it the deed that accomplished the proclamation or was it a word that accomplished the proclamation? Peter seems to think that that's unimportant because he doesn't tell us what the proclamation was. 
having surveyed the three different views that I believe hold the umbrellas over all the others, let's take a moment to address verse 20. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner notes that when we look at verse 20, the reference to God's patience fits with Peter's connection to Noah and his preparation of the ark. So let's, let's test this. Let's ask ourselves, could God have instantly destroyed the wicked and immediately started over with Noah and his family? I'd say, yeah, he could do whatever he wants. He's God. In Exodus, he's like, Moses, that's it. I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them out and start fresh with you. <laughs> In Numbers, God says, I'm going to do something new. Tell Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and all who are with them to stand on that side of the incense holders. And we'll see who is with God and who is not with God. And the earth opens. Never happened before. And they're swallowed alive into Sheol, it says. They're wandering and boom, he hits them with a plague and vipers break out. So if God wanted to destroy the people instantly, he absolutely could have in light of what the text teaches. However, God demonstrated his patience. Hmm. I think I've heard that before. Was that Romans chapter 5? While we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us while we were at enmity with him. Can we thread this through the entirety of the scriptures, everybody? God demonstrated his patience while Noah exemplified what? Perfect obedience. Genesis says all that God asked Noah, he did it all. Not one detail missed. God appears to have resisted exacting judgment against both humans and the rebellious sons of God with any sort of immediacy. I wonder if Peter referenced this for any specific reason. You think he was trying to fill a word count on his word doc for his research paper that was required? And he was like, man, the professor's going to ding me on this grade if I don't get this, you know, to the right standard. So I better just throw some stuff in the blender and just see what pops out here and then just Enoch, Noah, resurrection and ascension sounds good. I made my word count. You think that's what's going on here? <laughs> I know, like going back to what is it? Is it Philippians is or Ephesians is the longest sentence in the Greek. There's no punctuation. There's no, it's like, Paul, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I was in the spirit. I just started. I couldn't stop. <laughs> I'm saying Peter had purpose. He did this for a specific reason, and it's on us, separated from the text by over 2,000 years, to find out why he did it. Could there be any connection between the narrative of Genesis and Peter's original audience? Maybe the detail that a few people were brought safely through the storm would strike a nerve for a church that was experiencing persecution. Just maybe. Have we already forgotten that Peter's writing to different churches throughout five different Roman provinces, compiled of different people groups who speak different languages or in different cultures, although the Roman Empire is over them all, Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Perhaps the early church is wrestling with a sense of inadequacy because they're the minority. Because everyone that they know and love has turned their backs on them. Perhaps they can identify with a mere eight in all amidst a sea of scornful onlookers. Maybe that's what Peter's after. Maybe he mentions this as a reminder so that they could take heart, take Courage, stand firm, hold fast. Maybe that's what Peter's after here. Take courage, church. I can hear Peter saying it now while we continue entrusting ourselves to the only just judge, no different than Jesus Christ himself. Follow in his footsteps. We've unpacked all of this already. Maybe that's what Peter's after here. I can say, though, I don't know, and that's okay. I can say that. I can say I think that's what he's after here based on what I've studied, and maybe it's worth considering. Just maybe. 
Can you guys read this? Let's go to the next slide. I think there's a lag on the graphics iPad today. Can you guys read this for me? Now, I'm going to be arguing for my interpretation of this. For those of you who know who you are, you can hold whatever view you want, but this is my interpretation. New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards spotlights the reality that Peter is setting up a contrast between what baptism actually is and what it's not. Once again, we're dealing with the application of type and anti-type language right here in this verse. Back to back. 1920, 21. In the ancient Near East, the act of baptism was associated with what? It was associated with ritual cleansing and purification rites. The thrust of Peter's statement is that the act of baptism fails to provide the elimination of immorality from one's life. Check it out. Let's just think about this. Water can wash dirt from the skin. No problem. But baptism is not a bath, and Peter's audience knows that. So, What Peter is saying is that baptism cannot cleanse you of the immorality that you have. The nature of sin that exists in you cannot be cleansed by water. It's not the literal removal of the dirt from the body, but rather our appeal to God. But Matt, it says baptism saves. No, it doesn't. It says baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. We better be able to identify what this is because that's what baptism corresponds to. So whatever this is, that's what saves. Not baptism. Now we could look at the Greek terminology for flesh and dirt. And how Peter employed some unique terminology in and throughout this letter. And that could help us make the point. However, I'd like to direct our attention to Peter's statement about this appeal to God for a good conscience. How many of us know and understand that baptism for the church is an offensive act of spiritual warfare? Do we know that? Do we know that when we baptize people, we're engaging, we're taking offense against the gates of hell? You know, gates are a defensive thing. They're not an offensive thing. Gates are made to keep people out. So when we, the church, go on the offense and we push against those gates that are defensive, we do that, and one of the greatest ways to do that is through the act of baptism, spiritual warfare. Baptism is no longer simply associated with ritual cleansing and purification rites. That's pagan practice, not Christian practice. In the days of the early church, the sacred act of baptism required a loyalty oath. If you are unaware of this, you should study what it means to take a sacramentorium in the Roman world, the world that dominated the time the epistles were written in. Baptism required a loyalty oath a public avowal of those who stood on the Lord's side in the cosmic war between both good and evil. What do you do when you're baptized? What does the pastor ask you? Are you ready to be loyal to Jesus and to Jesus Christ alone for the rest of your days? Here's the line in the sand. You've never stood on this side before. And in the view of the church and the world, we're going to ask you to cross the line. Are you bold enough to take that step? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? No, but you have to be baptized to be obedient, believer. So step over the line. That's what Peter's talking about here. A public avowal of those who stood on the Lord's side in the cosmic war between both good and evil. How many of us know that we don't wage war with flesh and blood? How many of us know that? The term appeal is just as important. It should be understood as one's pledge. Likewise, the word conscience here is very unique and its lemma in the Greek refers to the disposition of one's loyalties, not your moral compass. When taken together, 
we can see that the act of baptism itself is not what produces salvation. Rather, baptism creates the opportunity for one to externally reflect what has already taken place by the Spirit of God within. It gives us the chance to publicly pledge our loyalty to the only risen Savior, Jesus, the man from Nazareth. Baptism is an antitype. It expresses the intrinsic state of one's conscience. A transformation which is realized only through authentic union with the resurrected Christ. That's right relationship with God. Therefore, baptism corresponds to the resurrection. Baptism corresponds to this. To what? To the thing that secured the reality that Christ had conquered death in the grave. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? What does baptism represent in Romans? There's no mention of water, but there is mention of a grave. To be fully immersed in the grave. Was Jesus fully put into the tomb? Did he come out fully physically? That's what Paul's talking about in Romans. It has no mention of water. Baptism, by definition in the Greek, is full immersion. So you have to ask yourself, in light of the context of what the author is saying, am I reading it properly? Because they describe things differently. And they use figurative language. They use literal language. They use metaphorical language. And sometimes they even use allegory. It's on us to recognize the literary genre and to read it accordingly. Every time somebody gets baptized, the church is reiterating the proclamation that Christ made in His ascension and His exaltation. It is a reminder to the defeated foes that you lose. That Christ won. Every time someone gets baptized, this is what is taking place in the unseen realm. The enemy is going, oh, I don't like that. And they don't like it for good reason because it's a reminder of their future. Christ's victory is just as important as proclaiming the condemnation of the fallen enemies of God. Baptism was then and it is now spiritual warfare. As Christ waged war with the enemy in His own life and in His own ministry, so we wage war with the enemy in our lives and in our ministries. Amen? Amen. We have a responsibility, church. I don't know about you, but I get pumped up. I get pumped up when I realize the very message which Christ proclaimed in and through His resurrection, ascension, exaltation, that's the same message that gets publicly broadcasted every time someone gives their life to Christ and chooses to exercise obedience via the act of baptism. It says heaven. Heaven celebrates more every time one sinner repents than when we stack our righteous deeds up. Heaven rejoices. Do you think that the enemy cannot see what's going on in the realm that is most natural to them? The realm they were created to exist in? They may be trespassed from it, but that doesn't mean they can't see and interact with it. The celebrations that Luke describes shame them when we come to Christ and then when we publicly proclaim our faith and our loyalty through our appeal to God for a good conscience via baptism, they're reminded that Christ rose from the dead, He ascended, and He's exalted. And that's our future, baby! That's it! The devil has nothing on you. Nothing! He would love to squash you and put pressure on you, but Paul says, when I'm pressed, I'm not crushed. This is why we exalt the name of Jesus. This is why we study the Bible. Because when you study this stuff, you're like, I have hope. I have a renewed hope. I haven't lost hope. I can't lose sight of hope. It's all about Christ. Yes, hallelujah. In my opinion, Peter was very strategic in how he chose to author this portion of the letter. It's not just something that can't be understood. And you don't have to hold my view. You can hold your view, whatever it is. 
But man, when you see it from this perspective, I'm telling you, your heart rate will just increase and you will be like, let's go. Where's my shield? Where's my sword? Let's go. You lack hope? Sit down. Let's have a talk about how you can have hope now and forever. Not interested? Okay, I'll talk to you about that later when you're exasperated because you haven't had enough yet. Next, that's how it goes. You know how I know? Because that's how it worked for me and that's how it worked for you. (laughs) Peter was very strategic. It's as if he had a desire to fan the flame of courage in the hearts and minds of the early church as they continued to endure persecution. And as a matter of fact... (laughs) The topic of suffering well just so happens to be the theme of chapter 4, what we're entering into in the weeks ahead. (laughs) So as we prepare to close out our study this morning, I'd like to honor Peter's desire to prioritize the gospel because that's what today is about, the proclamation of the gospel because we want every rebellious Elohim to hear that Christ crucified, secured the victory, and they ain't got nothing but torment to look forward to while we bathe in the glory of God. Can you guys read this for me, please? Just as Peter began the section in verse 19 with Christ, he finishes the section in verse 22 with Christ. It is the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus which secured our salvation, everybody. Peter may be focused on the resurrection and the events which followed it in this portion of the letter. However, he makes no distinction. He places no greater value on one aspect over the other. He sees them all as equally necessary. All were required to accomplish the perfect will of God. For the righteous requirement... Of the Father to be fulfilled, Jesus had to experience all of these things. You cannot take one aspect away or place one characteristic above another. They are all equally necessary. Saints, we have been invited. What a beautiful reality. We have been invited to stand in right relationship with the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe. And it was Christ alone who made it possible. Let's just remind ourselves before we end this morning. For Christ in His life and in His ministry suffered. Ultimately, He suffered at Calvary. And He suffered once for the sins of humanity. He is the perfect, righteous, atoning sacrifice. The once for all. For the unrighteous. For the whole of humanity. That He might bring us to God. Jesus was put to death in the body. But He was made alive by the power of the Spirit. And it was Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. And because He has been exalted by the Father, all angels, authorities, and powers, both seen and unseen, have been subjected to Him and to Him alone. That's the message. That's where we need unity, everybody. If we have unity on that, we can argue until the cows come home about the which interpretation is right with the stuff in the middle. That don't matter. Because when we stand there, Jesus is not going to say, what was your interpretation of verse 19 in 1 Peter there, son? We're actually going to be like, I did nothing. I deserve nothing. But look at him. And remember what he did so that I could be with you. Amen? That's the gospel. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to study the word, to spend time immersed in the word with one another, to read and to respond, to be conflicted, Lord. It's a good thing to stand firm and to hold fast to what Your Spirit has led us into and taught us is a good thing. To be united on the non-negotiables and to exercise uh, respect and honor on the negotiables, Lord, that's where we want to live. The text says, honor everyone. 
Help us to do that, Lord. We want to love like Jesus loves. So help us to look past our differences at one another and see one another for who we truly are. Sons and daughters of the King who will be eternally united because of the finished work of Jesus. We shouldn't desire to get away from one another in this life because we will be eternally connected in the life to come. Father, help us to remember that. Help us to honor those we differ with. Help us to respect those who are in tension with us, Lord. And help us to even love our enemies. I pray, God, that you would continue the conversation that has only begun this morning because that's what the sermon does. The sermon begins a conversation. Bless the conversation, the ongoing dialogue, Father. Carry us through it. Teach us, Lord. Reveal areas where we're off. Prune wrong understanding so that good, healthy, doctrinal growth can be our reality in this body and in the church universal, Lord, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.